Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. You can set your clock by which stretch he's going to be in pregame by how many minutes up till the the kick of the ball. The Saints were at the Chargers training camp, and I said, Drew, give me something that everybody, that you do every day, that somebody can take from, that people can learn from and grow from. And he goes, everything I do in my life is intentional. Every single thing I do in my life is intentional. And he goes, I have a notebook by my bedside on my nightstand. And every night before bed, I write out what I need to get accomplished the next day. And I wake up and I start checking those boxes every single day. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. So our guest today is an 11-year NFL vet. He was a center for the San Diego Chargers. He was drafted in 2004, Pro Bowler 2006. He played in 136 games in the NFL. A lot of hits, man. We'll get to talk about that. He retired in 2015. So he lined up under two of the best of all time, Philip Rivers and Drew Brees. He attended uh, Purdue University. And what I think is amazing, too, is he didn't play high school football. Our guest has a uh, podcast. It's called Finding Center. Um, I was lucky enough to actually be a guest on that. And, uh, and we got to chat. And I think it's just a fantastic guy. Our guest today is Nick Hardwick. Nick, man, thanks for joining us, buddy. Doc, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. So let's let's dive in with that, man. You didn't play high school football, but yeah. you went you went to Purdue University, and then you took advantage of your opportunity. I mean, luck luck favors the prepared. But talk to us about yes. that story. Yeah, it was kind of wild. I was going into high school. I was a five foot four, hundred and twenty five pound kid. I was small. I was tough. I was always physical. In eighth grade, I won what they called the Smash Award at my middle school for the hardest hitter but I didn't grow and I didn't hit puberty really until my sophomore year of high school, late my sophomore year of high school in the second semester. And I was on the football team my freshman year. There was two middle schools who converged into one and my school got invited late because we were not talented and there was only a handful of us that came. So we were a week late. Captains had already been picked. The roster had already been set. I don't think I played a single snap that year. And I actually blocked it out of my mind because I think it hurt me so badly that I wasn't good enough to play on this team where the coaches didn't trust that if I got in that I was going to be safe because I was much smaller than all the other boys. So I kind of started looking towards a sport where size didn't matter and you you got to stack up against guys who were – of similar stature to you. So I looked at wrestling and it just so happened at Lawrence North High School where I went, we had an all-time great wrestling coach. He's an Indiana High School Wrestling Hall of Fame member. Roy Steckard was his name. And then his coaching staff with all these 
unbelievable guys who had come through the program and were given back because Royce had changed their lives so much. I really just fell in love with Royce. And then I fell in love with wrestling and I fell in love with what wrestling gave me. And it gave me the tenacity, the discipline, the work ethic. And it really taught me the value that I can't blame anybody for my losses. And nobody can take acceptance for my victories, but my work, my effort, my technique, my conditioning, my know-how, my knowledge, that is going to either give me a victory or give me defeat. And I'm going to walk off of that mat and I'm going to know if I've done enough or not. And that knowledge was super invaluable. And, and Royce was an instrumental figure in my life, just as far as teaching me that it really is about the mind. We used to, as high school wrestlers, we, he gave us all a card that was laminated that we were to stick in our billfold as everyone used to carry around. And we had to memorize this poem. It's all a state of mind. It's all a state of mind. If you think you're beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you'd like to win but think you can't, it's almost a sense you won't. If you think you'll lose your loss, for out in the world you're fine. Success begins with a fellow's will. It's all a state of mind. And it goes on for a couple more paragraphs. And, and the deal is, you're only as good as you think you are. And you're only as good as you work to be. And that just translated over. I was a really crappy sophomore. I was 19 and 20 on the varsity team at 145 pounds. I hit puberty after wrestling season. I grew up and I ended up almost at 200 pounds. I cut down to 171. I was ranked second in the state at one point. I was a second seed going into the state tournament. I had big devastating first round loss in the state tournament. And then I came back the next year and I was 48 and three and I ended up finishing second in the state finals. And my dream, of course, was to win the state championship, but I didn't get that. And so I still had this big yearning and I go to Purdue kind of directionless a little bit. I had wrestling scholarship offers at Rutgers, but I didn't, I'd never been to New Jersey. It was 14 hours away from Indianapolis. I had no idea who was out there. And so I just kind of left that, joined my best friend up at Purdue. I was in Navy ROTC because I wanted to be a Navy pilot and then later a Marine Corps pilot because my uncle Joe or my cousin Joe, actually, he was an Air Force pilot. He was the most successful human in our family that I perceived, right? He mm -hmm. was happy, had a great career. He was flying F-16s for the Air Force. I thought that is super cool. So I went to Purdue, joined ROTC, had a friend ask me if I wanted to try to walk onto the football team. I said, sure, I'll give it a try. I'll entertain you, Frank. And so we started training, working out, and Purdue then goes on to win the Big Ten and go to the Rose Bowl for the first time since 1967. It was when Drew Brees was the quarterback. It was like Brees mania there. It was just absolute madness. 105 boys tried out for the football team what was my fourth semester. Five of us ended up making it to the next round of tryouts, 6 a.m. workouts. Two of us made it out alive of that one. And I was the only one that survived after about an additional season because my buddy Jimmy ended up breaking his collarbones. They just they misused him, real skinny wide receiver, got his collarbones broken, returning kicks and punts, and it was, it was an ugly affair for Jim. But it ended up working out really well for me. I ended up, when I walked onto the team, I was 230 pounds. And by the time I graduated school and was at the combine, 
was 295 pounds and got drafted with the third pick of the third round of the San Diego Chargers and had an 11 year career out there and just so blessed with all of it. It was good fortune, good luck, a lot of blessings and a lot of hard work. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. Our new book, Puke and Rally, it's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. It can be bought anywhere books are sold or go to the website pukeandrallybook.com. So what was that What was that factor? Why did they take a shot on you? Why was it that, that you made it through, like your mentality and everything? I mean, you know, take, take us a little bit deeper into that. So... I, and I don't know why at Purdue they had interest in me because we had to fill out little cards before our walk on what position are you? What are your high school accolades? I had no idea what I was going to do. I'd size myself up on the internet before I went. I was like, maybe I'll play D line or defensive end or linebacker or whatever. So I kind of wrote defensive end slash linebacker high school accolades, like not applicable here because there weren't any, but I, I didn't drum any up or anything like that. I just turned in my height, weight, and positions played. So I was obviously telling lies at the time. And I showed up, and I had a high and tight, like a Marine Corps high and tight, because I was wanted to be a pilot. I ended up being colorblind, so I couldn't be a pilot. So I was going hardcore Marine. I was going infantry. That was my next route before my friend asked me to walk on. So I had a high and tight. It was shaved. I mean, I'm talking down to the skin on the side, sitting up real high in the back. And I had my ROTC physical training gear on, real tight shirt. I had my little short shorts on. And I showed up at this workout where <laughs> I stood out. And I I'm think picture, I'm picturing Heartbreak Ridge. Yeah. Oh, you know what's funny? The, uh, my buddies in ROTC called me the Swede. Sweet. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I show up like that and I think they looked at me and they go, well, this is a guy who can clearly follow instructions and is willing to do anything with his body, including go to war with it. So we'll have him out here and maybe it'll be a good walk on for us and you'll do what we ask him to. And he's obviously unafraid and let's see what we can get out of him. And I, I don't think they had really any intentions for me to do above and beyond just being a walk-on and which is a great role on a football team. But I came on, I was a linebacker. I was working out with the linebackers anyway at the beginning in the 6 a.m. workouts. It was very obvious that I was not fast enough to keep up with those guys. Plain as day, I was giving her all she's got, Captain, and I was like <laughs> 10 yards behind them yeah. on every single drill. So I go to the first day of spring ball, and I was obviously lagging behind, had no idea what I was doing, complex position. The next, the next day, the defensive coordinator slash linebacker coach, he said, son, uh, who told you you were a linebacker? And I said, well, coach, nobody told me I was anything. I was just working out with these guys at the 6 a.m. workouts, which were a total puke fest, by the way. And I just assumed that that was my group. And he goes, come with me. And he kind of grabbed me by the arm and he walks me out of the linebacker room. And I was like, I oh, will go to the next door. That's the defensive end room, kind of a natural progression there. And he walked me past that door and he stuffed me into the defensive tackle room. And he said, this is you. These are your new best friends. This is your new room. Enjoy. And he just basically like shoved me in the room and I sat down and there was a bunch of 310 pounders plus in there. And I 
kind of looked around at 229 pounds that I weighed in at. And I was like, all right, well, this is going to get really interesting really quick. And the first thing I did, obviously, I realized I was much smaller than them. And I looked at Matt Mitrione, who's a MMA fighter now. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Matt and I said, Matt, how'd you get so big? And he goes, well, what I did was I just ate a bunch of pizza and Jimmy John gargantuan subs. I had two of those a day. And so I said, well, that's kind of a plan that I'll follow. So I had the two Jimmy John gargantuans every single day. I had two pounds of ground beef a night. I was weight training like I'd never done before in a great program with an unbelievable strength coach. And so I just started putting muscle on and I gained about 45 pounds in like four and a half, five months which is crazy. I mean, I was waking up in the middle of the night having a 700 calorie protein shake at two right. in the morning to set my alarm and it was sitting there and I wake up and chug it and go to bed. So what did they see in me? I don't know. Maybe tenacity, maybe intensity, and maybe it was just the high and tight. So when, <laughs> so when did, um, when did that moment happen for you where, you know, you, you, you make the lineup, you start playing and you're like, well, I mean, Hey, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a defensive tackle, as I told you, for about a year and a half. So in the spring through the following year, I didn't get a play. I almost got on once. I was the fifth defensive tackle, but they didn't get that deep ever because we were still trying to win games. And so I didn't ever get in that next spring. I had an exceptional spring and I was going to be the second or third defensive tackle going into training camp. I was like, for sure going to get playing time. And they knocked on my door after the first day of training camp. And they said, hey, Nick, we're, uh, we're going to move you to offensive guard tomorrow. And I was like, wait a minute, hold on. No, no, no. I, all I wanted, first off, was to wear the jersey and stand on the sidelines and act like the fans were clapping for me. Second, my goal was to either be on the punt return team or the punt team or the kickoff return team, somewhere that I could just be on the field on special teams and – be of use. And then it was get playing time. So that was going to happen. So I was going to check that box off because they weren't going to use me on special teams. I was just too slow and 280 pounds at this point. So I thought no way they're going to use me there. So I'm going to be a defensive tackle. Well, they knocked on my door, said, you're moving to guard. And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing over there. I don't know what a left play or right play is. I couldn't tell you the difference between a runner or a pass. And they go, that's okay. You got two seniors next to you. You're going to be all good. Pete Lockheed, Gene Merchkowski. And they go, they'll tell you what to do on every play. And by God, they did for the whole season. But the moment that I thought, okay, this is is going well for me is the first, the very first, and I remember it clear as day, the very first pass protection drill that we did. It was a one-on-one pass protection drill. And most offensive linemen will tell you this is the most – anxiety inducing moment in all of practice every practice it's one-on-one the defense has the advantage obviously a pass everybody clears out so there's nothing they have to work through no trash no flow of the play nothing it's just you on him he knows where you're going to be and he tries to beat you and the very first play I go up against a 330 pound man Damian Greer And I stoned him right at the line of scrimmage. Like all of my wrestling skills just kind of fit right neatly into this package. And boom, I stoned him right at the line of scrimmage. And everybody kind of went crazy. They were like, oh my God, he did it. And I was like, whoa, I kind of looked around and was like, what happened? You know, it was like one of those moments. It's like, 
holy crap, I think I'm pretty decent here. And then the next big moment, so I, I went on, I started, and then I ended up getting hurt. I had a high ankle sprain that year, which I thought at the time was like, why can't I play through a sprain? It was like high ankle sprains are pretty bad. So it took me about five games to get right. Well, just so happened the last regular season game that year, Gene Merchkowski, our center, tore his ACL. Mm-hmm. And so we were going to the bowl game. We were going to play in the Wells Fargo Sun Bowl against the Washington Huskies, who had a really good defensive tackle at the time. And my coach goes, hey, big boy, guess who's going to be playing center at the bowl game? I'm like, oh, you are. Yeah. Your, fir- your first game at center was a bowl game? Was a bowl game, yeah. Nice. Against, against an all-American level defensive tackle. And so I had to learn how to snap. I had to learn all the calls. I had to make the calls, right? It's like shotgun, all this stuff. So the two-week bowl preparation period for me was the one of the most intense boot camps that I could have ever been through. It's like learning all these new skills in preparation for a bowl game. And I immediately knew once I started playing in practice – guys and then got to the game and faced off against tank johnson who ended up becoming a chicago bears like a third round pick i squared up against him everything went really well i was like i got something and then immediately it was like i had a fish on the line right i was like i got one right it's like it just felt right and it wasn't long after that that agents started calling and seeing uh telling me what they were hearing from scouts and everything so I had two real, what they, what my buddy John Wellborn at Power Athlete would call eight mile moments. Yeah. I love it, man. You're either going to do it or you're not. Right. So another hinge moment then, you obviously get drafted, you go to San Diego, and then you get a start. And and walk us through, walk us through, I mean, how did you even get that starting job? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a little bit of luck, first off, like, One, I got drafted, so they really did like me. I don't think, actually, the offensive line coach would have chosen me. I wasn't his style. I was a little bit small. He wanted a bigger man at center with probably more experience than I had at the position. And so when they drafted me, I don't think he was super excited about it. However, the center that they had had for the previous two years – was holding out and he had said before the draft that he was going to hold out for a bigger contract he was a he was a free agent that they signed off the streets from the university of new hampshire he ended up having some some mental health issues along with some drug addiction issues and he was holding out for bigger contract well that just gave me the opportunity that i needed so about the second day of training camp once again they said, Nick, you're going to be running with the ones tomorrow. Let's see how it goes. And we never looked back. It was at a couple of weeks until our first preseason game. And it was my first ever. And it happened to be in San Diego against the Indianapolis Colts, which how uh, fortuitous that it was my old hometown team that came out. I graded out exceptionally well in that game. It was like when we came back into the room, you know, I thought I did well after the game. We came back to training camp in the meeting room and coaches kind of talking about the game and everything. And he's highlighting players. And then he got to me finally and he goes, and that was the best game that I've ever seen a rookie center play in the NFL. There you go. In front of your peers. And, yeah. And it would, you know, when in that kind of positive reinforcement right there, I was like, 
okay, I can do this. And he does like me because I thought for sure this man did not like me. And then all of a sudden, it's like I earned his respect immediately. And then we became very close. I actually named my oldest son after him, Hudson Houck, who Hudson Houck was the Dallas Cowboys offensive line coach through the 90s. He coached all of those legendary Super Bowl teams. He was the coach who became one of the first guys to sign a near million dollar deal as an offensive line coach. So he was a huge deal and I won his respect and trust. And after that moment, it was like, okay, we can do this. He still rode me hard and he still pushed me because I had to get much better than I was. But that little, that little glimmer, that little reward that he trickled out in front of my face, that, that was all I needed to latch onto to go. I, I've got a career here. I love that, man. So in 2004, I mean, you all had a good team, didn't you? We had a good team, yeah. So, so four, 14 and two? 12 and four. 12 we and four, 12 sorry. And four my rookie year, but it was a massive turnaround, right? So the yeah. year before, the Chargers were four and 12, and then we go to 12 and four. And then the second, my second season, we had some coaching staff changes, and then we're playing the harder schedule, right? So we ended up playing the first the first ranked schedule in our division. So we ended up nine and seven. And then the following year with Phillip Rivers was our 14 and two year. So let's, let me start on that year, man, if, if you don't mind. Cause so that year, 14 and two, and you all led all every offensive category, I believe. I mean, that was like Danny Thomason, obviously you have Phillip Rivers yeah. there and, and you have a, you have a great center. And um, <laughs> yeah. And then you have that game where the Patriots come to town, the playoff game. What do you remember about about that game? Because I mean, they, you know, I always think we we see like the home playoff game, you know, from an outsider's yeah. perspective as the juice being it, it can't get any more exciting than that. But what do you remember about best. that? It was the best. I mean, what a ruckus environment! So every stadium's got their own unique feel, mm-hmm. and our stadium, Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego, was a party. It was just an absolute blast. So like Chicago, they have a roar. And Indy, especially when they were at the Dome, it was just wildly loud. It was deafening. It was crazy. But it was like a kind of a, a normal, it, it was like a steady pitch that it had the entire time. And I guess we found out that they were pumping crowd noise in there, which was part of the reason that you could get 55,000 people. But ours was like a absolute party we had a the largest parking lot west of the mississippi river it's like 166 acres and so one of the great things in san diego that people loved was to tailgate hard all day especially for a night game and so when you go in there is absolute madness but what i remember about the game specifically was i thought well one we had the better team right i thought Personnel-wise, we had the better team. We had a better defense. We had a better offense. We had just as good of an offensive line. And we had LT. And we were 14-2, and two, and we were smoking that year. And you ask most people around the NFL that were intimate into the league at the time, and they would have said we were the best team. And we were the hands-down favorites to win the Super Bowl that year. And what I remember about the game was we started off – First off, coming into the game, there was a lot of pressure on Marty Schottenheimer to win 
the Super Bowl and to get it done in a big moment. So there was a lot of pressure on him. There was a lot of criticism about him getting tight in big games and going Marty ball and grounding and pounding and being too conservative, right? So the very first play of the game, we run the most basic play that you could possibly draw up. It was literally day one install. No shifts, no motions, line up. We're going to hit you in the teeth. And we're going to see if you can stop it. Boom, 11 yards. Primitive play. Like, did nothing fancy. And and right at that moment, I was like, we're going to roll these dudes. Like, that play worked exactly the way we're supposed to. We are going to roll these dudes. 11 yards on the most basic play. We weren't going to be stopped. The only thing that stopped us, we stopped calling the run. So, for whatever reason... And I guess, you know, I think you can point a little bit to the pressure building towards that playoff game on Marty to not run the ball, even though he didn't call the plays. He's on the headsets, right? And you have all those moments. And I think that was part of the decision or the collective thinking coming into the game was we can't be conservative and beat the New England Patriots. But we could have been. Right. And I think we could have very effectively run the ball on them had we just stuck with what worked for us over the entire season. But I think we only ran the ball. I look back at the game notes at one point. I think we ran the ball four times in the second half. And we were just bewildered. We had the best running back that the game had seen in a long time. And he was right in his prime. He was seeing everything clearly. We had an awesome fullback. Our tight end was phenomenal, Brandon Malu. Manu Maleuna, we had a great offensive line. We were smoking, right? We had everything we needed. We had a great defense. I think that's one thing that always gets overlooked when you talk about football teams is the defense, how the defense matters, right? And our defense was teethy. Like, they were were a scary bunch. And that was a game, I mean – if you're going to tell me that the grace of all time is going to throw three picks in that game and, and still win, I, yeah. I believed it, man. Yeah. Well, he wasn't the greatest of all time then. Right. Right. So, it, and they were, they were building the dynasty. This was on the way yeah, towards exactly. the dynasty. This wasn't the team that we've all come to hate. This was still kind of getting there and building it. And we could have been big disruptors in that whole process of the dynasty. I think ultimately the system would have won and Belichick and Brady and their coaching staff and the money and the resources they have would have ended up prevailing and doing exactly what they've done. But we could have done our part and been a little bit uh, disruptive in that process. The last one thing every Charger fan will remember, and probably a lot of fans around the league will remember, is that we had an interception late in the game. And Marlon McCree picked it off, and he tried to run it back for a touchdown. And I think it was Troy Brown came and stripped him, recovered it. They ended up kicking a field goal, tying it. We, You know, there was back and forth after that moment. So I think what kind of gets lost in all of it was – we still had the opportunity to beat them, but we didn't. And further, everyone wants to blame Marlon because it's easy to blame one guy for a loss. Marlon, I would argue, did the right thing trying to run the ball back. You're not going to sit on the clock for six minutes against the New England Patriots 
maybe if there was a minute and a half to go in the game, maybe if there was two and a half minutes to go in the game and they had two timeouts left, maybe you can chew that thing up. But six minutes, you're asking an awful lot out of your offense to be able to do that pinned back inside the 20-yard line against the New England Patriots. And that's that, a pretty bang-bang play. I mean, he got it, and they got stripped pretty quick. Yeah, and he wasn't in the end zone. It wasn't right. like he was. He caught the ball in the end zone. He, it was bang-bang, and it, I thought at the time it was a reasonable – at the time I was like, oh, my God, how catastrophic. And then you get these weird memory moments, right, where like the flash memory in a critical situation is way off. And then everybody's storyline kind of feeds into the way you remember the situation. So I had to go back several years ago when the Chargers were playing the Pats in the playoffs. And I was like, what happened that game? Because everyone in San Diego, I was on Sports Talk Radio at the time in San Diego, everyone had been like, if it wasn't for Marlon McCree, we would have won. And I was like, let me pull this up. You know, in fact, we got the ball back with six minutes, and I walked them through step by step. We actually touched the ball, I think, three times after Marlon draw or fumbled that interception. I think we touched it three times, and I think we missed a field goal or two after that. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot to blame, you know, after you lose such a devastating one like that. But there's also a lot of credit to give on the other side. Right. I mean, if, if we were to be the Patriots at that moment, we would have been like, well, look what we did. Look what we overcame. So my uh, – I mean, and that's why I always say like the hinge. I mean, it's and, – and people will look at – look, it's it's never one play and, it, and it's always one play. I mean, it's always going to be these little moments yeah. that happen. So Schottenheimer gets fired the day after, I believe, or soon thereafter. You know, it, it, took, a li- <laughs> it took a little bit to fire him and – I think he, it's weird. I think he forced himself out. Like him yeah. and the general manager's egos were both out of control. Okay. And they, Marty wanted control of the team. The general manager wanted credit for building the team. And it, we had to, we had coaches leaving after a really successful year, right? Like they do. We had one go to Miami, we had guys leaving. And I don't know if Marty thought he was going to get fired, but from my understanding, the general manager told Marty, you are not allowed to bring your brother in here to be the defensive coordinator. And sure enough, he tries to hire him after he had already reconfigured the offense. We lost our offensive coordinator, Cam Cameron, to Miami. We lost Wade Phillips. I think he went to Dallas or something like that. So we lost guys. And he he had intentions to replace him. Well, the general manager was like, that's not who you're going to replace him with. And so I don't know if he was forcing his way out or if he was calling AJ's bluff and then he got called on it. All I know is if you go 14 and two as a head coach and you have players who make errors in games, you have a kicker who misses a field goal. If I'm the owner of the football team and I have a general manager come to me that says, I want to fire my head coach who went 12 and four, nine and seven, 14 and two, and we're building this thing in the right direction. And he says, I want to fire him. I'm going to give him boxes and I'm going to tell him to pack his stuff up and security is going to walk his butt mm-hmm. out of that building. And he's not welcome here any longer. I, you can't give me a reasonable train of thought for why to fire a coach after going 14-2. It doesn't work. Right. I mean, how long does a loss like that stay with you as a player? <laughs> uh, it, I, it, I don't think about it any longer, but it does stick with you. 
it definitely sticks with you. And I think it, I think further it, it like burns into your brain, you know? So you have to overcome that loss, that previous loss when you get in spots like that moving forward. So the next playoff game, you're thinking you've played 16, 17, even 20 games counting preseason. You've had all these practices, but the very next playoff game you get in, guess what you're thinking of? Thinking right. of that last playoff game. You're not thinking about the last game you played a week ago where you were stroking. You're thinking about a year ago when you lost to the New England Patriots. And that, that's a mental hurdle to get over. So as a player who's, who's able to reflect on your career, do you think about the wins or do you think about the losses more when you think about it now? You know what? I, I don't think about losses, but I think about moments. Mm-hmm. And I think about lessons where I was deeply affected and parts of my career that hit me so hard, they just rocked my train of thought and forced me to dig deep and to, to come up with something that would allow me to overcome that obstacle, that would allow me to push forward rather than to just concede. And, you know, I think of, I think of, the injuries that I suffered in the league and what great lessons those were to me, just as far as you think when you come into the league and you're 22, 23 years old, you've been drafted, you've been paid, you're playing in front of thousands of crazy fans. When you walk out in your city, people admire you and they respect you and they, they, you know, want to take your picture and sign autographs and all this thing. So you get this, immortality thought about you where I can't, I'm, I'm invincible, right? Like this is, I'm out here. I'm dominating guys. I'm talked about in town. Like you get this immortal thought about you. And every time that that got too high was when I got hurt. And it was a great moment for me to go, Hey bud, the wheel in the sky keeps on turning, right? at some point, this gig is going to be up. So I'm watching a guy where I know I'm coming back. I know I'm going to get healthy at some point, or I don't. I've had some like that where I thought, okay, it's 50-50 if I come back from this. I tore three ligaments in my midfoot, had a plate, seven screws, three wires. I had twisted, I got my leg landed on and had a plate, three screws, two wires, and that had to have my ligaments sewed up on the inside of my ankle where Those are ones where you're like, I don't know if I'm coming back from this or not. But sitting on that couch or sitting on that sideline, kind of incapacitated, watching somebody do what you thought was your job, like I'm the center of the San Diego Chargers. And it's like, uh uh-uh, bud, you're a center for the San Diego Chargers. You're the current center for the San Diego Chargers. But I promise you, this game's going to keep going on after you leave. They'll take a brief pause maybe if you were good enough and honor your career, but it's going to keep moving, I promise. And everybody's going to be focused on that center. So that kind of thing for me is very humbling, and it gave me a great perspective about life. So how did that, um, like when you would go back and return to play then, what was your perspective and, and your attitude then? Just so gracious. Yeah. Just so gracious, yeah, to, to actually be able to get back on the field again and to do what you couldn't do, to even be able to run or walk with a brisk pace. You know, those were the little baby steps along the way. It's like that would 
make you feel good. It's like, oh my God, I can walk again. Oh my God, because I was non-weight bearing at one point for 12 weeks, right? And I was getting fat and out of shape and no exercise and no good chemicals going to the brain. And so, you know, that was part of the process was walking and then jogging. What a milestone that is. And then running and then blocking, holy crap. And then getting back into a game and getting over that. And I remember the first game I came back from my foot injury is a Liz Frank injury is what it's called. And this was one that was repaired here in Indianapolis, Dr. David Porter. And he knew how I played. He knew my game. He was the, he's the godparents to my sister-in-law. So he had watched me and he gave me a 50, 50 chance of ever coming back from this thing. And it hurt like the Dickens, like it still hurt a year plus out of surgery. And when I finally made it back to the field, I missed three games that year. I had surgery in March. I missed three games at the beginning of the 2007 season, no 2008 season. Yeah. And I came back and I came back for the Oakland Raiders. They had a guy named Turdell Sands and Turdell was six foot eight, 400 pounds with about 15% body fat. He looked like an, he looked like an orc forged in the fires of Mordor, right? And he was, when, if the camera was on the other end zone, you couldn't see a center in the shot. I yeah. was gone. I was just completely covered up. And so when I come out, I have to block him one-on-one, -on -one, one of the very first plays of the game. And I had so many doubts as to whether my foot was going to hold up or it was going to explode again. Like I thought there was a chance that these wires that they had put in there were going to bust and my foot was going to explode. And so I didn't even know going into the game if it was going to hold up. I was doing pass sets in my hotel room, putting weight on it and driving off of it. And I'm like, well, we're going to find out if this works. I missed all the training camp. I basically practiced on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday before the Raider game. And they said, Nick, you're in. Okay. And so I go out against one of the largest mans that I ever, largest men that I ever encountered. And the, one of the first plays, I'm one-on-one -on -one with him. And this 400 pounder just took me back to the quarterback because I was very tentative. I was just playing cautious, right, with my foot. And I was like, okay, let's feel this out here. Well, there ain't no feeling out. He, he carried me back like a little child back to Phillip Rivers, and he sacked us both. I remember being <laughs> under Turdell and over the top of Phillip and looking back like, sorry, Bo, and not knowing if I was going to be able to finish the game. And basically, it was one of those things where I just dug deep and said, hey, I'm not getting embarrassed again. I already did. I'm not getting embarrassed again. I am more than willing to blow out my foot and to end this season and end my career to avoid that embarrassment again. So you better buck up, Buttercup, and start playing some ball here and stop being tentative. And after that, it, it worked. You know, whatever little talk I had to give myself, I had to go play some ball. Yeah. No, uh, there's no easing into a street fight, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought there was going to be, but apparently not for him. So let me, um, I mean, buddy, we could go for hours, right? I mean, yeah. Cause I, I love the stories, man, that you share. Um, when it comes to big guys like that, 
what happens then? And I get you know, this is generalizing, right? But what about like with him? Then when you punch back, I mean, those guys aren't used to getting it punched back, right? Yeah. What what happens? What happens to their mentality? You, the 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 thing is, you have to punch them. Right. If you don't punch them, if you're absorbing, you're not in the fight. So that's what I w- I caught on the first one and got mowed over, and my career during my entire career i was very undersized for a center especially during the time that i was playing because there were behemoths and now it's gone to a smaller faster more compact defensive lineman who could be disruptive against the pass well we were a more run-based football league at the time and we did a lot more drop back passes so we did we ran the ball old school, traditional style, but we also did a crazy amount of seven-step drop. So you had to be able to, as a center, one-on-one pass protect, seven-step drop against a really gnarly dude. And you figure out really quickly, coming into the league, I did. I was blessed with a nose tackle with the Chargers, Jamal Williams, who was all of 340 if not more, and a freakishly strong and compact human being. And my philosophy on all of it was, you had better be the most aggressive guy on this field by far, if you're going to survive. And you have to come into this thing with the look, the feel, the presence, and the tenacity to back it up that I'm not going to be messed with and you're not going to break my will. There is nothing you can do as an individual to break my will. And I came to the field carrying that every time I stepped up to the ball. And it was, I had a great, I was blessed also with a really good strength coach who coached alongside, he coached Mike Webster, but he also coached alongside of Mike Webster at Kansas City. And they called it the Webby rule. So every time we broke the huddle, I was in charge of sprinting to the ball. And that kind of come forward, you know, with the snarl on your face. And we're not just walking up here, taking a casual, like I'm coming up, I'm putting pressure on you. It's basically like putting my forehead in your chin at a fight weigh in, right? It's like, let's go bucko, right? I'm coming up. We're always moving forward. Even if we're going to pass, I'm going to retreat, but I'm going to finish that pass block moving towards our end zone or towards the end zone we're trying to score on. So it was really, and it's kind of, and it's funny to say this to people who weren't in the locker room, but it's a bit of prison mentality, mm-hmm. right? You, well, if you don't it, push it, back, if you don't push back, you're gonna get pushed out. You're, you're gone. Yeah. And that's, I mean, really how I ended up with green arms and tattoos everywhere. Like, and it's funny now because I'm just a normal dad, like I'm a normal suburban dad. And I came from the suburbs, like a very normal upbringing here in Indianapolis, Indiana, And I tried so hard to hide that in the league because you don't want any weaknesses to be exposed. And so part of the tattoos and the green arms and the attitude and I had long hair and part of that was my fear. Like I was scared that I was going to get exposed as a normal suburban white kid out there. And instead I be, I turned myself into a badass and especially for those three and a half hours on Sunday, I was not going to be effed with. And neither was anybody on our offensive line. When you were, you were, uh, I mean, you were underneath two of the best of all time. Yeah. 
what were the lessons that you got from, you know, Drew Brees and, and Philip Rivers in terms of how, you know, how they approach the game, their preparation, all those details? Yeah. Uh, and really interesting how different those two are and how they could both achieve their maximum potential while being completely different, but completely authentic to themselves too. In the middle of that, by the way, I got a snap to Doug Flutie for two games. Oh, good. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. So, and, and Doug's approach was completely different than those two. And Doug's an all-timer Heisman trophy winner, but Doug was 41 at the time, but he played the game with a childlike zeal and he would come into the huddle and it'd basically be like real sneaky. He'd be like, Hey, here's what they called over there. Let's figure it out. Like, let's, we'll just figure it out. You know, once we snap the ball, I don't care what happens. He's like, just, you do this, you do that. We'll figure this out. Just go down the Buick, turn right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't care. He's like, you know, if somebody gets beat on the offensive line, not a big deal. So Doug was great. And he was very calming in the huddle because it just had such a casual approach to it. He's 41. He was a dad of, I think, three at the time. And he's like, hey, he was with that guy over there standing on the sidelines who's never played a lick of professional football called. And uh, here's what we're going to do. And that was super cool. Drew is an engineer. He's an industrial management major from Purdue. And he's got a, a really analytical, systematic mind. And it has to be the system for him to have success. And every minute of every day is intentional and programmed. Like you would expect an engineer's brain to be, right? It's like, mm -hmm. check, 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 check. And he's got this system in place. He does the same exact routine every single day, every single night. You can, and I'm not kidding, watch a game now. You can set your clock by which stretch he's going to be in pregame by how many minutes up till the, the kick of the ball. Every single game is. That's, that's how dialed in his stretching routine was. That's Drew on everything, though. It's yeah. not just – it's his pregame stretch routine. It's his pregame drink. It's his pregame meal. It's his postgame recovery. It's his – you know, it's everything. It's every single practice. He comes in and he takes care of his shoulder and he does his little micro exercises and he's got his own fitness routine and he's got his mental skills that he works on every day. And I got the chance to interview him after I was out and it was – the Saints were at the Chargers training camp, and I said, Drew, give me something that everybody, that you do every day, that somebody can take from, that people can learn from and grow from. And he goes, everything I do in my life is intentional. Every single thing I do in my life is intentional. And he goes, I have a notebook by my bedside on my nightstand, and every night before bed, I write out what I need to get accomplished the next day. And I wake up and I start checking those boxes every single day. So everything's intentional. Philip Rivers is... Matt, can I ask you a question on that? Yeah. Because that's, that's not very difficult to do. No. <laughs> but, but who's willing to do that stuff, right? But, I mean, that's what it takes for a guy like that. That's what it takes. Yeah. I mean, every, every single that. night, then he would journal and write out what it is that he's going to be intentional about tomorrow. Every day. I mean, what about if we, if we all did that, Nick? It, it takes five minutes. Yeah. Right? It takes five minutes. And I'm almost – of course, there's exceptions. But I think 
very successful people all have that in common where they have a to-do list. Very simply. It's like the simplest thing ever. Right. Like check, check a box, cross the line off when you're done. And then you can move through your day. Very See, f- with a lot of focus. Yeah. And that's the thing though, right? Like people would love to have Drew Brees' career, but they wouldn't be willing to do the things that he had to do. Everybody would love. Yes. 100. And I think that's true for a lot of very successful people in general and a lot of very successful athletes. Like I would, people would love to be an NFL player until they get hit in the mouth until they realize, until they realize what it feels like to wake up on a Monday or a Tuesday and what you have to go through to get to the following Sunday until you realize you're working 70 hour work weeks and you're spending countless hours falling asleep watching film late at night or early in the morning and you're up at we were up at 4 30 i was in the building by 4 50 every single day and we weren't out there until we were 12 hour work days every day on top of the physical and mental damage that we were doing to ourselves right a lot of people want the success but the the work that it takes to get there and the self-reflection that it takes to get there and the honesty that it takes to get that kind of success That's what's rare. And I think, you know, when I look back at my career, what I'm so thankful for, and I just got off the phone with another center, Joe Hawley's his name. And we just spoke about how the the thing we're thankful for in the NFL is every day you have to get better. You're fighting to get better or you're fighting at least at a minimum after your athletic potential has been tapped. You're fighting to stay there and to improve in intangible ways if you can no longer improve the tangibles. If you can't physically get stronger, faster, jump higher, or be bigger, you have to work on your intangibles, your leadership, your communication skills, your knowledge, the, the way you come in and the energy that you bring into a huddle, into a locker room, right? The, there's always something to work on. A six-inch step, the placement of my thumb when I punch a guy, my eyes, what did I miss, right? There's always something. And you don't even think about the great plays you had. You always only think about the two bad plays you had. And even if you didn't give up a sack, or even if you really didn't get beat, you felt the potential to get beat. And so you were going to go work on that skill because you know if the guy on the other side next week is doing his job, he's going to see that potential to beat you and you had better clean that up, right? So that's one thing that I think all successful, probably people, but especially professional athletes have because of the urgency created, because of the national TV, because of the salary, because of the film that's watched and studied and scrutinized and your coach breathing down your neck all the time. Like, you had better be getting better and evolving constantly or you're not even going to stay afloat. Mm -hmm. You get me fired up, buddy, just hearing you talk like that, man. I'm ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, so what about Philip Rivers then? I didn't mean to cut you off on that tangent. Yeah. What about him? So Philip is more artsy than he is engineering. And I don't mean that like – I mean that from a mental standpoint, he's very fluid creative and he's very creative and he is emotional and Drew's not right. Drew may have emotions. I don't know. He doesn't show them right. He is, he has harnessed them where Philip feeds off of his and Philip requires his emotions to be at a heightened state to get his best performance, but it's a double-edged sword a little bit. 
Philip's brain capacity and brain power is higher than anybody's that I've ever met. His ability to take in inputs and to be able to very fluidly deal with concepts and understand patterns and to be able to memorize. He's got a photographic memory, which is, it's crazy. I mean, the plays and the, the defensive coordinators and the stats and what, what, they're, what he's looking at and the percentages and being able to memorize. So this was a, a crazy thing. North Turner came from – we went from Cam Cameron to North Turner. And Cam was very much like Drew, very systemized, very tight, very rigid. We had 45 pass concepts up per game. That's it, 45. When North came, it went to 240. Wow. We, you can't practice. You don't have 240 practices during a week. So to think about getting all of those concepts drilled and repped and against various looks on defense and from one side to the next, I mean, you're talking about magnify that by at least four. So 240 times four at a minimum, they can change things up. You can invert things. You can do different things on the defense. But then, so that's pass route combinations. And then we got to talk about the front. We got to talk about blitzes. And we got to talk about how we're going to do checks and everything. Philip's ability to handle Norv's brain, because Norv had a, a similar brain, very fluid, kind of artsy. His ability to handle that was staggering. And to take what Norv would give him and to be able to execute that at a high level, not many guys could do that. And, you know, is. It's one thing, and I always thought we are way excess with Norv. We had way too many plays. I wish we could have dialed it down, but Norv was a counterpuncher. Right. And Norv wanted to go into a game with all of these different abilities to be able to adjust to how they present themselves. See what they were going to do. Marty was a march forward and knock you right in the face guy, and I'm going to take some licks at the same time. But Norv wanted to duck and evade. Another analogy I like to use to kind of – highlight coaching differences like Bill Belichick is a printing press every single week it's the exact same thing you know where it's going you know the typography you know the format it's like here it is we're gonna out execute you Norv was Vincent Van Gogh and some weeks it turned out like the most gorgeous painting that you could ever imagine and it was like holy crap who's calling plays today we are smoking and then other put up 47 oh yeah yeah. and then other days it'd be like what is going on why can't we get off on the right foot here what what is happening we're all bogged down and it turns out that the the van gogh was a mess and he needed to throw it in the scrap heap right so you know one thing i i have learned over the years is a Really tight system, really well executed is much better than an elaborate plan that is only sometimes well executed. Right. I believe simple is powerful, man. Yes. So, yes. you know, you were, you were talking about like the urgency, man, of an NFL player week to week and always getting better. How, when you retired, and I want to get into your health in a second, but when you retire, man, how do you replace that, that urgency and, and buzz and, that you have? Yeah, I don't think you do. I don't know. I mean, that's the one thing that one of the huge drop-offs when you retire from professional sports anyway is that 
urgency is gone in real life. It feels that way anyway. Like when you walk into a corporate office or I was walking into the, the radio station, the local radio station, you know, things happen. Things get done on a daily basis, but there's no fight. There's no, there's no pending fight. There's no pending 400 pound man that I'm getting ready to line up against. Like the urgency to get better is it's strictly inside of you. And then I think what a lot of former athletes struggle with is your sense of urgency and the timeline that you want things done on. Nobody else is used to that. And nobody else operates like that. Like things that you think are going to get done in a week may take six months, may never get done. And that's a really frustrating thing. And I I do think part of slipping into retirement a little bit and finding happiness is the ability to gear down, to be able to go from sixth gear down to third gear. And then finding happiness when you do get up to fourth somehow. And I, I do, I'm hundred percent with you. Like, how do you replace the urgency? I don't know if you do, but you had better hope you have the systems inside of you to continue to try to find ways to improve. And I think one of the big things that I like to do is just, I like to have something that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. It, it could be anything because I can get, as long as I'm excited about it, I can get into it and I can be doing it for hours and lose track of time just like I were playing in a game. And sure enough, I look up and it's 3 p.m. and the kids are home and I'm like, whoa, what happened to the day? I was in a time warp there. And that's how it was when we were in the office. You would look up and all of a sudden the day's done and you were kind of sad that you had to leave your buddies. Right. You know, when you retired, man, you lost, I mean, 100 pounds, right? You went from 305 to even under 200. That was the goal. Yeah, I went from 308 down to the lowest I got was 202. Okay. Didn't you get under two? I wanted to get under two. I didn't get under two because I weighed in at 202 after a hot yoga class. And I looked at the scale and I was like, yes, this is awesome. Three more pounds and I'll be 199 and I'm done right there. I'll win. I turned and looked at the mirror in the bathroom afterwards. I was getting ready to get in the shower and I was like, that's disgusting. And, and further, if I go out in the real world and anything's going on, like if Armageddon hits, I'm going to get my ass kicked. I better, start, I better start eating. So I went home and had a huge meal. And my wife was like, thank God, put some muscle back on, would you please? I didn't marry this slim guy. I don't like it. Talk about, you know, a Hardwick life though, man, you know, gut, joints, brain. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I think the most critical aspect of health is brain health Mm -hmm. and brain health is mental health. And you talk to experts like Dr. Daniel Amen, you don't disassociate the two. You can't, if your brain's not healthy, your mental capacity is going to be impaired. And so you look back, I look back at my life and I look at other football players and the damage that we sustained. What are we all most concerned about is our brain health. Right, I took 30,000 head hits and I didn't play high school football. 30,000. So guys that played a lot more ball than me took a lot more hits. And especially along the offensive line, you don't take usually the massive shots. You take the little jabs. But the jabs are the ones that end up racking up. And we that was don't, a paper cuts, man. Yeah, exactly. And offensive linemen don't get days off. Defensive linemen don't get days off. Like when we're practicing, we're practicing. 
there's no go through the huddle and act like you tackle the line or go through the line and act like you tackle the running back. There's, you know, LT never got hit in practice, even in training camp. We ain't, you ain't hit. Get off of him, right? Marty would be yelling all like, get off of him. Like, <laughs> no, I don't want him touched, right? So, well, we got to block for him because they're still trying to make plays and you're getting all those little blows. So 30,000 head hits. And for me, the primary goal in all of health is to take care of the brain. Well, you can't take care of the brain if you can't be at a healthy body weight. So when we talk about gut, joints, and brain, the primary objective is to take care of the brain. Get to a healthy body weight, which takes stress off of your joints. Three to four times the weight that you lose is relieved from your lower body extremity joints, your hips, your knees, your ankles, your feet joints, which I didn't know existed until I tore some ligaments in there and there's little micro joints all along there. Three to four times the relief for every pound that you lose. So I lose 100 pounds. I've lost three to 400 pounds of the wear and tear on my lower body extremity, which is going to what? It's going to allow me to exercise more, which is then going to pump fresh blood and oxygen into my brain, which is going to help restore that, create new connections and allow my brain to be healthy moving forward. So it's all a cycle, right? But it, it starts with the, the wanting to take care of the brain. And then it goes to taking care of the body, which then will carry the brain to good health. When you retired, man, you spoke about, you know, you were having issues, you know, completing thoughts. Yeah. And, and then you went through a six week brain treatment center, like protocol. Talk about that, man, about rewiring your brain. Yeah. So that was, that was a really cool deal now. And you know, I, I really believe in being proactive and staying ahead of it and doing everything possible today to prepare for a good outcome in the future and putting yourself in a great position. Like I did through wrestling, through ROTC, while walking on to prepare for a great future, having no idea what was to come, but knowing that if I took care of myself, if I took care of my grades, if I was in the athletic world, that something good was going to happen to me, and it did. And I think about that with my health. I know what outcome in general I want. I want to be a healthy 100-year-old man that gets to watch my great-great-grandkids grow up, right? Like, I want to see that. I want to be a part. I want to be vibrant. I want to have conversations. And so when I noticed several years ago that, and I, this was great because I was getting real-time feedback being on sports talk radio and trying to be very coherent and going in multiple directions. This is yeah, You got to be witty, right? You're live. You're yeah. live on air, right? And you've got to be on point. Well, I was noticing when I was trying to go and take little divergent paths off of my primary thought that that divergent path would lead to another divergent path. And then I was never able to really complete the loop and bring it back to the primary thought. And I remember my buddy, Pat Dossett, he was a Navy SEAL. He said, hey, if you ever start having trouble with your brain, he goes, I got a great place in San Diego. It was recommended to me when I got out to deal with some TBI issues, had great success coming out of there, six-week program, super intense. And I put myself through it as I was noticing slight hiccups. I mean, these were just minor things, but also you know, not wanting to necessarily, and this is what the doctor at the facility, who was also a former Navy SEAL, 
what he called caveman mentality. It's like you reach your capacity fairly quickly through the day. So I go to the radio station, three hours talking to another individual. I don't want to go out in the world. Like it's too much. I'm just going to hole up and worry about what I can. So have some issues with thoughts, have a lack of desire to get out into the community and to go be a regular human being and to enjoy life. It's like, better go get checked. So went in there six weeks, five days a week of electric stimulation. It's called magnetic e-resonance therapy. And basically they, what they're trying to do is to make a better uh, wavelength pattern out of your, so we take a, uh, initial EEG, which records your wavelength. And like your heart, it's got a pretty regular and programmed wavelength in different areas along the way. And it's, it's really cool. You learn a lot about your brain and the brain in general and where you stack up with other people and stuff. And basically they're trying to assemble and then to arm neurons and really align your wavelengths from front to back and from side to side in a, in a smoother pattern and then to try to amplify those to ramp in my case they needed to ramp me up a little bit because I was a high what they call theta wave producer which is they would do my EEG and they would go did you fall asleep during the EEG and I said no and they go did you meditate and I'd say no I was just sitting there and they're like all right well you are uh, you're in a meditative state with a high theta wave production and I don't know if that's always been me but I always have been fairly calm and under pressure, fairly calm. And I don't know if that was beat into me through football where I was dulled a little bit from, uh, from all the, the repetitive head hits or if that was just me, right? So that's one thing that I would urge people that are getting into combat sports or physical sports early on is to just know what your brain looks like you know, before you get into it, that way, you know, maybe when it's time to get out. Yeah. You got that baseline. Yeah. And so you were even told though, I mean, you want to get out earlier before then, I mean, rather retire a year early than a day late. Right. Yeah. You know, my dad's philosophy was always don't outstay your welcome. So we'd always be the family that showed up early and left early. And like, if I stayed at my friend's house, he'd be like, be home at seven 30 in the morning. I was like, do we have anything to do? And he's like, Nope. Just want you home, want you out of their hair, right? Like, don't outstay your welcome. And my strength coach that I told you I was blessed with early in my career, he's like, get what you need out of this and get the hell out, man. He's like, it's a dangerous sport. You got to get out of there. And so I planned on playing eight years and getting out. And I really contemplated getting out after my eighth year, which was the last year of my contract. My best friend, my left guard, he had a catastrophic concussion at the end of that season, ended up having a grand mal seizure on the flight on the way back from New York to San Diego. It was absolutely horrifying. I was the first one there to deal with him, to go talk, talk to the doctors and get the trainers. And yeah, it was a horrifying experience. So after that, I thought, okay, that's, that's enough. Right. And then they offer me a three-year contract worth a lot, of, a lot of money. And well, the, the money's just life-changing and it's, it's generationally life-changing. And so 
it was very difficult and obviously for me impossible to turn down. And so I accepted a three-year deal and we played three years and with a very clear picture that no matter what they offered me after that three years, I was done. And my body at the time was done anyway after 11. Yeah. I mean, it's so awesome, man, when you look at it, because you got, you got to call the shots in terms of when you were done. I mean, how many athletes actually get to get to do that, man? I mean, that, that's got to be such a blessing you look at. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of guys struggle because they don't get to call the shots. Right. They don't get to determine when they're done. I didn't get it. It wasn't the perfect ending for me. I got put on IR after week one, my 11th season. I had had too many stingers. It was spinal stenosis, bone spurs, bulging disc. My hands were shutting down on me, which is ultimately why the team shut me down was I was, I couldn't screw the lid on a water bottle. I was dropping my pens. I could still snap and block hurt like hell. Every time I'd get a stinger that would shut my arm down. And so week one, after a ton of stingers during training camp that year, they decided to shut me down. And I was so thankful for that. I mean, what a, what a, a a bit of grace from the team to go, hey, Nick, we have to have a tough conversation. It was after a Monday night football game. I got an MRI, came into the team facility on Tuesday, and the trainer goes, we got to have a tough conversation. And I thought, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord, because I, I didn't want to have to suffer anymore. And it was turning into a great deal of suffering. Yeah. And so it didn't, it wasn't like a fairy tale ending. It wasn't John Elway going out holding the Lombardi trophy, which that's honestly, I wanted to come back and give it one last go. Right. It's like, you want that, but not everybody gets to write their own ending and you just, I'm a very positive person. And so I shifted immediately from the time I got put on IR to I'm going to control what I can control. And that became the weight loss. And I, within probably a week and a half, I was down to 270. And by the end of the season, I was 208. Love it, man. You know, as, as a fellow dad, right, I mean, you spoke and we've talked about uh, your son looking up to you, tackle football, he's hard on himself. Yeah. You know, and I've heard you speak about this, but you have a ritual with your kids at night, right? You have a saying like with yeah. your own family, you know, allow for future mistakes, plan for success. Talk, talk to our listeners about that. Yeah. So our motto is I'm not as good today as I will be tomorrow. And it plans for failure at the moment, right? You're going to fail today. There is something that you're not going to be as sharp as you want to be on. You will have moments of failure, but also it gives the understanding to, we will make every effort that we can to improve. And then we're going to take those lessons that we learned from those failures that were gifted to us. And we are going to find a way to get better tomorrow, to be more impactful in the world. And one thing we do every night before bed is my boys, I go to the room individually and I, before I pray, I say, give me three things you're grateful for. And one thing you're going to work on tomorrow. And they love it. They tell, if I try to walk out because I'm tired before they give me their three things, they're like, dad, can I tell you what I'm thankful for? I'm like, oh yeah, sorry, buddy. Let me come back. And then I, I pray and we pray together and then we go to bed and it's just, it really is. I want them to know that failure is a good thing. Like when you find your limits, that's a good thing. And then how can we get past those limits? And we're going to plan for the failure. In fact, we're going to seek the failure 
and then we're going to try to push through the failure. I love those conversations with, with my son and daughter. My son will talk a little bit more, but after the prayers are done, those, those conversations are so cool, man. Aren't they? Yeah, because I mean, you have no idea what, what's going through his head, man. Is he just like, I just think, you know, because it would be so easy to kind of shut it off, be like, all right, that's enough, like going to bed. But even if it goes a little bit longer, it's just so wild to see what they're thinking about and the pictures they got in their head. Yeah, and it's such an open moment too, isn't it? Yeah. That like, you've let your guard down. You're asking somebody else for help instead of being like the dad figure. So son, daughter get to share their moments. It's like, hey, we're at a pretty unguarded moment here. Let's, let's let it rip. This is the time. Yeah, I love that part of the day, man. It's real cool. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, uh, what question should I be asking that I'm not asking? I think you you covered it, man. It's, that was you were dialed. I can't let you I, off like that, though. I, I, mean, I should be I should be asking you more questions. What uh, what can you add to our listeners that that somebody needs to hear? I just think if people will take the approach that like Joe and I talked about of looking at every day with great honesty and you can go further than every day you can go every moment and you can say i'm having a bad moment like i'm having a bad and i'm not right now but i'm having a bad moment with my wife for some reason something got lost in translation we're bickering at one another let's let's accept this loss right like this is a failure on my part on her part but I'm going to own and I'm going to accept the responsibility and not blame her for what's happening right now. If we can do that as we go through our days and our weeks and our months, if we can take great honesty and be very critical of ourselves, but also forgiving at the same time, like nobody's perfect. Like nobody ever played a perfect NFL football game ever. Like even somebody who graded out hundred percent, I bet they would go watch that film and they go, God, wish my foot was turned in a little bit more. Like nobody's ever played a perfect football game. Nobody's ever had a perfect day, I would imagine, in life. And so if we can accept that, but we can still be critical of ourselves, then I think we can make great improvements from day to day. They're marginal. They're tiny little improvements, but I, I think we can make those. I love and I it, think man. we should be striving for that. Nick Hardwick, man, where can people learn more about you? I'm going to put the links on there, but where do you want people to learn more about you? Yeah, awesome. Find out about me. I'm at Nick Hardwick on Instagram or at the website hardwick.life for nutrition, fitness advice. We're launching fitness programs, and we've got a really unbelievable registered dietitian who's writing awesome, awesome, like very thoughtful, very practical and applicable newsletters every single week for us. So hardwick.life. It's like hardwick.com, but it's hardwick.life. Thanks so much, Nick. Appreciate you, man. Dr. Bell. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.